And before we start um, reading God's word, let's uh, pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are thankful that we can pray to you and that you answer our prayers. And Father, we, we also acknowledge that um, we need to come to you and pray because otherwise we wouldn't understand your word. So Father, by your grace, give us your spirit um, to open up this passage to us and speak to our hearts and enlighten us about what you want us to see and hear. And then point us to Christ as well. Father, we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in chapter 36 of Isaiah, and I start reading from verse 1. In the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. Then the king of Assyria sent his field commander with a large army from Lachish to King Hezekiah at Jerusalem. When the commander stopped at the adequate uh, of the upper pool on the road to Londra's field, Eliakim, the son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, the son of Asaph, the, reco uh, the recorder, went out to him. The field commander said to them, Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, the king of Assyria, says. On what are you basing this confidence of yours? You say you have counsel and might for war, but you speak empty words. On whom are you depending that you rebel against me? Look, I know you're depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of the staff, which pierces the hands of everyone who leans on it, such as Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. But if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying, Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar? Come and make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, I will give you thousands, two thousand horses, if you can put riders on them. How then can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this land without the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, Shebna, and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the people sitting on the wall? Who like you will have to eat their own excrements and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says the Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not uh, be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says, make peace with me and come out to me. 
Then each of you will eat fruit from your own wine and fig tree and drink water from your own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own, a land of grain and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards. Do not let Hezekiah mislead you when he says, The Lord will deliver you. Have the gods of any nation ever delivered their lands from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Shepharphaim? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who are all the gods of these countries? Sorry, who, who of all the gods of, the, of these countries have been able to save their lands from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply, because the king had commanded them, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shepna, the secretary, and George, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. And when Hezekiah heard this, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and went into the temple of the Lord. He sent Eliakim, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and the leading priests, all wearing sackcloths, to the prophet Isaiah, son of Amos. They told him, this is what Hezekiah says, this day is a day of distress and rebuke and disgrace as when children come to the moment of birth and there is no strength to deliver them. It may be that the Lord your God will hear the words of the field commander whom his master, the king of Assyria, has sent to ridicule the living God and that he will rebuke him for the words the Lord your God has heard. Therefore, pray for the remnant that, is still, that still survives. This is a bit of a longish reading, um, but we're actually looking at chapter 36, 37, 38, and 39. We're looking across them anyway. And as um, you have a rather long reading like that, you can picture, you can you know, work it through in your, in your mind's eye watching these things happen. King Hezekiah of Judah, he was far from a perfect man, but in that last verse that Reich read there, he knew to pray. King Hezekiah of Judah was far from perfect, but he knew to pray. When um, we read about King Hezekiah in growth group, we were doing the kind of the, the flyover of two kings to set the scene for Isaiah. This is the verse that stood out for me. It's, it's repeated for us in chapter 39, verse 8. The word of the Lord you have spoken is good, Hezekiah replied, for he thought there will be peace and security in my lifetime. The reason it stands out or stood out for me at the time was that comes on the back of God promising that Babylon will come and decimate Israel or Judah, plunder Jerusalem and take their people away. You'll see it in verses um, 5, 6 and 7 um, of chapter 39. And in response to that, Hezekiah goes, oh, good, not in my lifetime. It just makes you think, what kind of man is this that you could think like that? A very self-centered kind of view. And then you reflect on it and you think, well, actually, he's a sinful human being like you and I. He's a normal, normal person. And I guess that's one small example of his humanness, that he would think that way, just like you and I would. But then the wider context, um, as you look across chapter 36 to 39, 
the wider context is you see a man, yeah, he's not perfect, but he knew to pray. We've been looking at um, Isaiah, working our way through. Uh, Isaiah was a prophet in the southern kingdom of Israel, around about 700 BC or thereabouts. Um, chapter 1, verse 1 tells you that he was a prophet in the south over the span of four kings, and Hezekiah is the last of those kings. And today we're looking across these uh, four chapters, 36, 37, 38, 39, and as you look across, what Isaiah does is he shows you two times that Hezekiah, king of Judah, prayed to God. And the first time is there in chapter 37, verse 14 to 20. So it's beyond the reading that we just had, but if you look ahead at chapter 37, verses 14 to 20, you'll see Hezekiah prays to God. He's praying to God in response to a very real threat on Jerusalem. Um, Assyria is surging down upon them, and the field commander of Sennacherib, king of Judah, uh, king of, uh, of Syria, is outside the gates of Jerusalem, shouting out horrible things. And Hezekiah prays. That's the first of Hezekiah's prayers. The second one is ahead in chapter 38. You'll see it in verses 2 and 3. This time, he's not responding to the real threat of a foreign nation or a foreign king. He's responding to the real threat of illness. Hezekiah, he's on his deathbed, but he prayed, and God answers his prayer. So Isaiah shows us these two prayers from King Hezekiah, an imperfect man, but a man who knows it's important to trust God and a man who knows that it's right to pray. Um, now, you might be thinking to yourself, here we go. Here comes a sermon to guilt trip us into praying more. Well, if that's, if that's the way you're thinking, maybe that's appropriate, but that's not the idea. As we look at um, these chapters and as you get a feel for the way Hezekiah prayed and why he prayed, hopefully it is an encouragement to us to trust God and show our trust in God by praying. I mean, prayer takes you to the heart of what it means to be a Christian, doesn't it? To talk to our God... To pray to God, it's the base, most basic thing about being a Christian. It means that we're acknowledging God is God. It means that we're trusting that Jesus' death in our place is sufficient that we can talk to God. So prayer is at the heart of what it means to be a Christian. Um, when you think about it, Christian faith, it is as simple as trusting God. That's it. Christian faith is as simple as trusting God, and yet... Living the Christian life is as hard as trusting God. It's as simple as trusting God and it is as hard as trusting God. It's hard to trust God sometimes when you're looking at what's happening around you and think, how could God let that happen? It could be hard to trust God. And sometimes our feeble trust, it's kind of stretched to its utmost. You really do feel like you're having second thoughts when everything seems like it's going wrong, Isaiah shows us two times that King Hezekiah was tested just like that, pushed to the limit. Um, Isaiah chapter 36 to 39, uh, what we see here is the importance of trusting in God. And you see Isaiah recounting two parallel situations. Two parallel situations. Two times Hezekiah was tested, first by the Assyrians and second by illness. In chapter 36 and 37, it's Jerusalem that has the near-death experience. It's the city of Jerusalem that looks like it's going to go under, has a near-death experience. In chapter 38 and 39, Hezekiah has a near-death experience. It's like these parallel accounts. And in the middle, you've got Hezekiah's prayers. Two times, King Hezekiah found himself on his knees praying to God. Two times, God answered 
that prayer. So we pick up the narrative in chapter 36, verse 1, and you kind of got to read these ver- couple of verses slow and let it sink in. So it says it's the 14th year of Hezekiah's reign. So he's not a spring chicken. He's been around. He knows what's what. 36, verse 1 also tells you Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah. You think about that. That's everything outside Jerusalem has been attacked by the king of Assyria, Sennacherib. Um, when you, I showed you this picture a couple of weeks ago, this, the, the, the dark green is the, the kingdom of Assyria and it grows to the, the light green. We're somewhere in that growing phase and there's little Judah stuck there. Um, 36 verse 1, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he's attacking all the fortified cities of Judah. And as you read on, you'll see he's at Lachish, Lachish or Lachish. He's on the south, in the southwest, maybe sort of encircling Jerusalem to stop any help coming from Egypt, perhaps. You think, why is this happening? Well, maybe it's happening because um, Hezekiah and uh, the kingdom of Judah have started making agreements with Egypt. Maybe it's because they've started um, negotiating arrangements with Babylon beyond Assyria. Maybe that's why Assyria comes down on them like they do. So in 36 verse 1, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, he's attacked all the fortified cities. He's closing in on Jerusalem and he sends his um, field commander to Jerusalem to basically taunt King Hezekiah. So if you look at um, chapter 36, there's Lachish. I should have showed you that map before. You probably can't see much. There you go. If you look at um, 36 verse 2, Sennacherib sends his field commander up to Jerusalem to threaten Hezekiah. Notice where in verse 2 the, the field commander stops. He stops at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the launderer's field. That's just a very descriptive location. But if you just happened to preach a sermon on Isaiah 7 a couple of weeks ago, you'd go, oh, Chapter 7, verse 3, it's exactly the same location where Isaiah met Hezekiah's father, King Ahaz. It's exactly the same location where King Ahaz was tested and failed. And so as you're reading on your way through Isaiah, you get to hear and you go, oh, ding, ding. Isaiah's showing us something here. Hezekiah is going to be tested, and he certainly is. The Assyrian field commander shouts a demeaning message to Hezekiah's representatives, um, basically asking, who's Hezekiah trusting? Go and ask Hezekiah. Who's he trusting? So in verse 6, the field commander declares Hezekiah is naive in trusting Egypt. In verse 7, the field commander twists the truth about, I mean, Hezekiah has done these reforms. He's got rid of all the the high places outside of the temple. He's done the right thing, and yet it gets turned and spun. The truth gets turned um, by the field commander into saying, you know, who are you going to trust? The the God whose whose altars you've got rid of? And then in verse 8, he's highlighting um, that their fighting force is depleted. So you look back over this, this field commander's message and it is lies. It's lies with a bit of truth seeded in it to make the lies more, more better, make them hit home better. He twists the truth and the goal is to undermine Hezekiah's trust in God and in the process to undermine the trust of the, the people as well. And when you think about this message, this is the field commander speaking, but it's Sennacherib behind it, the king of Assyria. You think about it, no, it's nothing new here. This mind game that the Assyrians are playing, they're they're reading off Satan's handbook, Satan's playbook, if you like. This is the same kind of deception that 
the serpent got up to in the Garden of Eden, where you, know, you, qu- you twist God's words. Did God really say? You challenge God's word. You won't, sure. Basically undermining Adam and Eve's trust in God, thinking God hasn't got their best interest in heart. It's the same playbook you've got here. Um, Satan hasn't changed. He plays the same game with Hezekiah as he played with um, Adam and Eve in the garden. And as we look at this, we think, no, Satan hasn't changed. He's still playing the same game with us, isn't he? It gets in our head with questions like, you know, how can God really care if he's letting that happen? I mean, it's your family. How can God care if that's happening? Um, you see, see what God's doing? How can you trust God? It gets in your head like that. This is the way Satan does things. But back to Hezekiah's situation in Isaiah 36, verse 11, Hezekiah's men, they asked the Assyrian commander to stop speaking Hebrew. He's speaking in the, the language that all the locals understand. They're worried about the people on the, on the wall hearing. And, but instead, the Assyrian um, field commander has more to say. He's got a second message from verse 16, basically saying, don't listen to Hezekiah. Or verse 18, don't let Hezekiah convince you to trust God. Um, This would have been a trying time for King Hezekiah. There's no doubt about it. He's not a perfect man. Yet, unlike his father Ahaz, I reckon he passes the test. He trusts God. So in chapter 37, you see Hezekiah's response after, after he's torn his clothes. His immediate response is in verse 1 of chapter 37. He goes to the temple. Second thing he does, he sends a messenger to God's prophet, Isaiah, verse 2. It's like Hezekiah recognises he needs to hear God's word. Um, 37 verse 4, Hezekiah knows the real issue is not, it's not about him. Sennacherib is mocking and ridiculing the living God. That's the real issue. You can see that reflected in Hezekiah's choice of words. And then in Isaiah's, it's all there. 37 verse 6, Isaiah sends a message back to Hezekiah. This is a message from the Lord. In chapter 37, verse 7, God says he's going to cause Sennacherib to return to his home country, to go back to Nineveh, and then back in his home country, Sennacherib will be killed. And just keep that in mind, because that does happen. But in the end of verse 8, we see Sennacherib beginning to have second thoughts. There's something going on here as you read through. You kind of need a commentary or something to unravel it. It would appear that um, Sennacherib is starting to have second thoughts. He, he moves from fighting in Lachish, moves out, and, but he still sends a messenger a message to his field commander to continue to harass Hezekiah. So whatever second thoughts may be beginning, um, 37 verse 10, he says, don't let your God deceive you when he says Jerusalem will not fall to Assyria. He's still pumping out the same lies. Hezekiah may not have been a perfect man, but he knew how to pray. And so now you come to his first prayer in verse 14. Um, Hezekiah takes this written message he's got the king of Sennacherib and he lays the message down before God in the temple and he prays and it's quite an amazing prayer you might even recognize some words from our prayer earlier in church but if you look at verse 16 I'm just going to read it so 37 verse 16 Lord Almighty the God of Israel enthroned between the cherubim you alone are our God over all kingdoms of the earth you have made heaven and earth give ear Lord and hear, open your eyes, Lord, and see. Listen to all the words Sennacherib has sent to ridicule the living God. It is true, Lord, that the Assyrian kings have laid waste all these peoples and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them, for they were not gods, but only wood and stone fashioned by human hands. 
Verse 20, now, Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you, Lord, are the only God. You look at the words, there's a kind of a mature faith about it. It's, it's an amazing prayer. It shows humble trust in God despite all the turmoil around, despite the pressure to cave. And it shows a desire to see God glorified over everything else. Um, Hezekiah's prayer is answered. God sends a long reply through the prophet Isaiah in the form of like an open letter to King Sennacherib of Assyria. Just look at how the chapter ends. Jump right down to verse 35, the last verse of chapter 37. I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of David, my servant. It's just these, these reminders that you can trust God. He's made these promises to Abraham. He's made these promises to David and he will keep them. You can trust God. He will always keep his word. And God's saying he will spare the city. And then we're told in Isaiah 37 verse 36 that an angel of the Lord went through the Assyrian camp outside Jerusalem and killed 185,000 of them. And so, needless to say, the camp um, broke, the Snacker broke camp, sent all his men home, went back to Nineveh. He stayed there, and in verse 38, he was put to death by one of his sons. Remember exactly what God said would happen. So Isaiah's recorded this for us, right in the middle of this long 66-chapter book. I think he's recorded it so that, like Hezekiah, we will see that God can be trusted. Despite what's happening around, God can be trusted. Sure, Hezekiah wasn't a perfect man, but he knew how to pray. He knew to pray. Then you come to his second prayer, which I think was actually his first prayer of these two. Um, I think Isaiah has swapped the order. I don't think I'm alone in thinking that. If you look at chapter 38, verse 1, it opens with, In those days, Hezekiah became ill and was at the point of death. So in those days, it's kind of vague. It's not identifying exactly when. Just note that. He was at the point of death. This is like a near-death experience. This is another, like I said before, parallel circumstances. Last time it was Jerusalem near death. This time it's Hezekiah, king of Judah, near death. Um, God gave Jerusalem a reprieve, and he's about to give Hezekiah a reprieve. But the vagueness of the in those days, I think it's deliberately vague, because if you look ahead, I think you'll see this illness happens before what we've just seen with Sennacherib. So if you look down in verse 6, 38 verse 6, God promises he'll deliver Jerusalem from Assyria. But you just read him do that in chapter 36 and 37. He's just done that. Isaiah's already shown us that in chapter 37. Um, looking ahead in chapter 39, Hezekiah entertains the envoys from Babylon. And it's possible that's, you know, at least in part, the reason why Assyria came down to attack Jerusalem in the first place. Because of this, this posturing between um, Judah and Babylon. Isaiah, he's chosen to tell us about these two near-death experiences in reverse order. Um, the reordering, I think, is purposeful because he's more concerned with the content than the timing. He's ordered the account of the first half, uh, so the first half of the book ends with this ominous threat of Babylon coming. So if you look at the bottom of your sermon outline, you've got that diagram. We're in this sort of narrative pivot that um, Reich pointed out for us. And by switching the order, it means chapter 39 finishes on that note of this promise that Babylon's going to come. And so it kind of, you've got the, in the blue part there, you've got the Assyrian threat finishing, the Babylonian threat beginning. It's, it makes sense 
for Isaiah to switch it around like this. Um, and here's a bit of a tangent for the, those that like to talk about other details. When you go through two kings, the order matches the way it's recorded in Isaiah. So, and it's word for word. So which one came first? Did kings copy off Isaiah? There you go. That's something you can talk about. But let's not get distracted by that. Let's come back to where we are in chapter 38 and we'll start speeding up a bit. Isaiah, what he's doing is he's drawing our attention to two situations where trust led Hezekiah to pray. Um, the second prayer, though, is feeble and it's short. may have been his first prayer of these two. It's more likely... I mean, it feels like his trust is feeble. I don't think that's the case. I think it's more likely the situation is so dire he doesn't have much to say. So look at um, verse 2, 38 verse 2. Hezekiah turned his... He's just been told you're going to die. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully and with wholehearted devotion and have done what is good in your eyes. And Hezekiah wept bitterly. I don't think you could get much shorter in terms of a prayer. But again, God answers through his prophet Isaiah, verse 4. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go tell Hezekiah, this is what the Lord, the God of your father David, says. I've heard your prayer and seen your tears. I will add 15 years to your life. And I will deliver you and this city from the hand of, the, of Assyria. I will defend this city. Um, God gives an almost immediate answer. And then you see he also gives a sign in verses 7 and 8. You just think this is another reflection on Ahaz, Hezekiah's father, who didn't trust God, wouldn't even ask for a sign. Hezekiah's prayer, though, look at it in verse 3. It's feeble, stressed, it's minimal. Remember, Lord, how I've walked before you faithfully with wholehearted devotion and have done what's good in your eyes. And then he weeps. It's a nothing as far as prayers go. But it's all God needed to hear from Hezekiah. In verse 1, God told Hezekiah through the prophet Isaiah, get your things in order, you're going to die. In verse 3, he prays that feeble prayer and God gives him 15 more. It's like he gets an extension. Why is God choosing to act like that? It's not the only time in the Bible that you see God plainly change plan. He says, I'm going to do this. God's people pray and he does something other. It's not the first time in the Bible that you see this happen. And I mean, you can, you can overanalyze it. You can think, yeah, what if Hezekiah didn't pray? Would God, you could do that if you want. You can overanalyze it. But I think, no, let's just see if what it is. We need to hold two things in tension here. God is fully and utterly and completely sovereign. He knows everything we're going to do and he's planned everything. God is completely sovereign. You hold that in, in, in one truth. And the other truth is God chooses to listen to prayer and to respond. And you hold those things in tension and you live with it. And it makes you appreciate just how amazing it is that we can pray and how important it is that we pray. It might be a, a well-crafted prayer like the first one. It might be a simple, basic scream to God like the second one. Even the minimalist, desperate, near-nothing prayers like verse 3 are what God wants to hear. Um, in the New Testament, we see another king pray to God when his life was on the line. You can think who it is, can't you? Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. 
Jesus, who is fully man at that point, fully man, still is, but as fully man understands Isaiah, he's read through Isaiah, he's read those servant songs, he knows the servant must suffer, he tells his own disciples, I'm going to Jerusalem, I'm going to beat this, he knows exactly what's going to happen. Knowing all that's ahead of him, in Mark chapter 14, verse 36, you read, Abba, Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. In a way, it's almost like Hezekiah's second prayer. It's short. It's not a lot to it. But the last bit's very important, yet not what I will, but what you will. Trusting in God the Father to do God's will. And the answer to that prayer of Jesus, it wasn't a reprieve or an extension. Um, sometimes that's the way. Sometimes God, that's his answer. But in that case, Jesus that night, remaining faithful, trusting God, being obedient, praying God's will be done, leading to his death and his resurrection means that all our prayers can be heard. It's amazing when you see God's sovereignty on the one hand and then the fact that God listens to our prayers on the other hand. It's through Jesus that we can now come to God and be heard because of his death and his sacrifice and his resurrection. Um, and before that night in the garden, Jesus taught his disciples how to pray. And the start of the Lord's Prayer is very similar. Verse 10 of um, Matthew chapter 6. Part of the prayer is, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven that's another king praying in the new testament but let's come back to isaiah as we finish off have a look at the rest of chapter 38 as you read through the rest of chapter 38 there's a massive great long account of what was going on i reckon in hezekiah's head when he prayed that short prayer as he reflected on his illness the rest of chapter 38 has this long record of hezekiah's reflections he clearly grew in trust i reckon and i wonder whether that meant that the second prayer the first switch him around was more mature but chapter 39 shows us again that hezekiah was far from perfect he welcomes these um, people from babylon these envoys from babylon and basically shows off all the wealth in the temple in the palace meaning that later babylon would know exactly what to plunder just this little reminder that Hezekiah, yeah, he, he knew to pray. He wasn't perfect. He's a sinful human being. And as we look at this, I think that's the place to let it hit home. Hezekiah, he wasn't perfect. We're not perfect. He knew to pray. Do we? Do we know to pray? Um, I'm going to pray. Um, I'm going to mix a few words up from Hezekiah's prayer as well, but let's pray together. Lord Almighty, the God of all creation, enthroned between the cherubim, you alone are God over all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made heaven and earth. Give ear, Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, Lord, and see. Our world lives like you don't exist, and we're easily drawn in as well. Lord, please help us to trust in you. Please help us to be quick to pray to you, and please help us to keep trusting in Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.